Welcome to This Week in Church History. We're grateful you joined us for a wide-ranging conversation about events in the history of the church. Here are our hosts, Dr. Michael McMullen and John Mark Yates. Conquer by this. On October 27th in 312, the Emperor Constantine had a vision of a cross and an understanding of a command to conquer under the sign of the cross. As a result, along with his victory, Constantine the Great became the first emperor in the Roman Empire to convert to Christianity. The story of Constantine and his uh, conquest in the name of Christ, supposedly, or under the sign of the cross, is one that is uh, a rather large issue, and it looms through, or looms large over so many different areas. So to discuss that, I'm here with my uh, inimitable colleague, Michael McMullo. He's now laughing. All right. So this is, this is the story, right? When we talk about uh, the challenges of, uh, of Constantinianism, church and state, all of these issues, it all seems to flood very quickly back to this particular moment, October 27th, 312. What is going on with a vision of the cross? Well, you know, first, I must say that, um, you know, John Mark sent me uh, several options that uh, we could have spoken of today. And, and, uh, you know, as is the case every week, we have so many different people and events that we can choose from. And and I chose uh, this particular issue uh, primarily because... um, just two weeks ago, I was actually in the city of York where Constantine mm-hmm. was proclaimed emperor. And, and outside the, the great minster that is there, there is this larger-than-life statue of Constantine um, and, and uh, some nearby Roman ruins and pillars and, and everything. And it harks back to the day when York was an incredible center of the Roman Empire. And his father dies, and and Constantine is proclaimed emperor by his troops, and and that's a problem because there's already another emperor, and right. and at the time there are actually you know four emperors, and and what Constantine will do, um, is he really believes that he should be the sole Roman emperor, and and he'll spend, uh a couple of decades yep. uh, marching through Europe, uh, fighting the other emperors, and, and becoming sole emperor in the 320s. So in 312, um, he's on one such venture uh, to fight against the Roman emperor Maxentius in Rome. Um, and the problem is that Maxentius has four times the troops that Constantine mm-hmm. has, and he also has the incredible Praetorian Guard. He also has the kind of security of the city of Rome itself. So there really shouldn't have been any question uh, that Maxentius wouldn't win. Um, now, Constantine on the eve of the battle has a vision, so we're told. And, and also a, a, a dream, maybe that night. And, and the problem is we have two accounts of what actually takes place. 
um, two men from Constantine's days both give different accounts of what you know Constantine may have seen, and then Constantine commits himself to fight in in the name of you know the Christian God compared to Sol Invictus now. And and has an incredible victory by painting maybe the cross or the Cairo on the shields of the soldiers. Uh, it's an incredible kind of visual thing, and I wish Hollywood uh, would make uh, a movie of Constantine's life. I think it really just begs out, you know, for such a thing to be made. Yeah. So for any of our listeners who are movie producers, uh, this <laughs> this is your yeah. opportunity for a great story because it really is. It's it's fascinating. He, I mean, he is militarily gifted, right? There, there's no question about Absolutely. that. Absolutely, And he's got an incredible army that, that they are going up against these unbelievable odds. But here in this moment with this vision, and again, according to the accounts too, it there may have been one that was in the sky yes, visible a, a, to a, all of the a men. A huge visible flaming cross. Yes, in the, in the sky. And Above then he has the a vision. Sun. Yeah, and, and that is an interesting thing because Constantine is a, is a sun worshiper. He the, is. The soul Invictus, yes. the, uh, the 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 conquering sun. So this is who he's he's been worshiping. And then you see this cross burning in the sky. Above the sun. Above the sun. Yeah, I think that the visual Im- imagery is really important. And of course, there's massive debate. Um, what really happened? You know, what is the truth of, of these accounts? and and um, you know, Eusebius, who, who gives one of the major accounts, and Lactantius is the other, Eusebius says that Constantine gave his account on oath. Yeah. Um, I think that's important too. Um, and, and, you know, whether he sees the cross and, and then, you know, is told to conquer by this, and then Christ appears to him in a dream and explains it, and, and, you know, maybe he uses also the Cairo, the first two letters of Christ's name in Greek. You know, wh- whatever the the kind of details of these visions, um, the historical details are, are factual and and you know, kind of verifiable that he has an incredible victory, mm-hmm. and and Maxentius drowns in the River Tiber, and and Constantine marches into Rome to show that. Uh, they're under new emperorship, and and then he will go go on to um, you know make sure that Christianity is not persecuted anymore with the Edict of Milan, and and then he'll go on to conquer the remaining emperors, and and uh, and then call the Council of Nicaea uh, to create harmony and unity in the empire. So it, it's an incredible event in history. And, and puts an end to the Diocletian persecution, yep. um, you know, which, which was aimed at all but eradicating the church. Correct. So when we think about persecution in the church, uh, a lot of times, uh, and we've talked about this before on the podcast, that uh, a lot of times in our mind, especially kind of in the evangelical church, we think through, oh, you know, the church was always under persecution kind of globally from from its outset, but that just wasn't the case. It was regional and all these pieces until you get to the 250s and then you've got a massive persecution wave and then it kind of fades and then it 
pulls back up at the close of the, the third century uh, with Galerius and Diocletian. And it's just hot all the way until you get to Constantine. And when he comes uh, and is having these victories and uh, defeating these competing emperors, persecution ceases. And it gives the, the churches space to, um, to rebuild their buildings, to, uh, uh, to, to, again, advance the cause of the, the gospel to, uh, in a missionary sense to new territories. And uh, it, it's, a, it's a radical shift. Yeah, if you if you imagine you ha- you've had these two Roman emperors, you know, Galerius and Diocletian, especially Galerius, you know, bent on the eradication of the church. And and so many of the leaders have been tortured or killed and and um it's the worst persecution the early church will go through. Mm-hmm. Um and then suddenly for that to stop basically um Overnight, with the accession of Constantine and and with the edict, and and then suddenly, um, you have a Roman emperor now who is blessing the church and and building cathedrals and calling church councils and and helping to decide theological issues uh, about the person of Christ and and you know elevating positions within the church and and you know paying for for areas of, of the empire to have a pastor that they couldn't afford. Um, it's hard to imagine how the people of that day would have thought about yeah. these events. Um, trying to, you know, believe that this was real, as difficult as it would have been to have seen that Saul was now converted and become Paul, I suspect, in mm-hmm. some ways. How do you believe such a thing? Well, of course, because God can do it. Um, but then, of course, you have the things that flow from Constantine being the emperor. And, and you talked earlier about Constantinianism, you know, the, the wedding of the church and the state and, and everything that flows from that. So say now for a thousand years, the church and the state are united with all the negatives that come from that. Mm-hmm. Um, but Constantine... You know, it, it's debated whether he really was a Christian, whether he was just very politically savvy. Uh, he certainly was a great military commander, uh, used logistics incredible. Uh, he did want a united empire. The only possible way of achieving that would be through somebody um, that was found east and west. Well, mm-hmm. the only thing to you know fill that was the church. Right. And so... Was he clever, and did he use the church? From your opinion, was he a Christian or not? Oh, I believe he was, absolutely. Um, Many of the things he says, you know, if we lay aside just his actions for a moment, many of the things that he says, how he talks about his faith, how he talks about being in darkness, and and now Christ has become his light that he really did believe that God had made him a bishop of bishops to, to not lead the empire and lead the church, mm. um, to be its defender, to be the one who would be its benefactor and, and deliverer and in those kind of ways. I really believe that he saw that he was the man for the time. And, and you know, all other things remaining equal, what would have been the future of the church under Galerius? Um, 
you know, even though Galerius dies prematurely, that, you know, you did have that precedent set. So things mm-hmm. were really very bleak. And then Constantine comes along. So I, I really do believe he was converted. Now, was he a perfect Christian? Well, I don't think there is one. <laughs> and, and he certainly had lots of issues. And, and you know, uh, writers say he imperfectly understood, uh, you know, who Christ was and, and what the relationship between uh, Saul Invictus and the Son of God really was and how that should have played into his faith and everything else. But surely a, a lot of the responsibility for that would have come from his regular meetings that he had with the bishops. Um, they should have been the ones to point out kind right. of deficiencies in his theology and practice. Well, and at the end of the day, this is one of the things that that calls into question some of his um, his con- the nature of his conversion because it is uh, he refuses to be baptized until his deathbed, and when he's baptized on his deathbed, um, he is baptized by a different Eusebius than the one we mentioned before, Eusebius of Nicomedia, who is uh, an Arian bishop, uh, basically for those who don't know what that means, uh, an an Arian um, was someone who believed basically that Jesus was not eternal, that that God created him, uh, and uh, that this, this heresy, which had been pretty much rebuffed completely at the Council of Nicaea in 325. Yet here's here's Constantine on his deathbed being <laughs> baptized by really the archvillain of the whole Arian heresy story. It, it's so fascinating to think that that's the case. Yeah, that's a great description of Eusebius, you know, the arch enemy. Um, and, uh, and of course, it wasn't, you know, uh, Constantine was doing nothing unusual by having a, a, a near-death baptism. Um, if your church is filled with the idea that uh, post-baptismal sin is unforgivable, um, then for a soldier or a military commander especially, the church became very reluctant to actually baptize them mm-hmm. before their deathbed. And, and so for somebody like Constantine, all the more, really. And so to be certain about what baptism is and what it did or whatever else, you know, to delay or postpone your baptism was fairly common. Now, how great would it have been if he'd actually come out and been baptized pretty soon after his conversion? And what kind of impact would that have had on the empire? But he's doing nothing unusual. Now, to be baptized by an Arian uh, was a problem too. But again, you know, the kind of intricacies of theology um, was a, a responsibility of many of the bishops that he right. met with. And, and so trying to put straight with him, you know, who Christ really was according to Scripture um, was a responsibility that should have been taken up by the church. It's difficult to lay the blame at Constantine's feet. Um, now, of course, it was a heresy. Um, but he felt that he was being advised by people who only had his best motives in mind, yes. I suppose. Yeah, and it's interesting here too, and and for our readers, just to make sure that we we are super clear, um, it is not the case that the empire became Christian, putting quote marks around Christian, 
under Constantine. It was just that Christianity was tolerated, which then eventually leads the way for it to becoming the quote-unquote official religion of the empire. Yeah, it becomes a, a licensed religion um, with the Edict of Milan. And, and Constantine is very clear that he doesn't wish to impose that on the empire. Uh, he mm-hmm. didn't see that as his responsibility. That was actually uh, something that God himself would do. He didn't see that as an imperial responsibility, that it was to be imposed by him. So how do we get to Constantinianism and this idea that the wedding of the church and state is so close and consequently the state even should compel people to follow Christ? Of course, the empire follows the emperor. It, it, it's what had always happened. So a pagan emperor would make a, a, a declaration, a sacrifice to Apollo or Jupiter, and then you know command the rest of the empire to do such a thing. Uh, Constantine comes out as a Christian emperor. He certainly calls the Council of Nicaea. He certainly superintends its meetings and its committees, Eusebius, you know, praises him for his great entrances and the prayers and everything else, uh, the whole dedication of the council to God. Uh, Constantine changes what starts to appear on the Roman currency. He uses it as a vehicle now to, mm-hmm. to head off paganism on the Roman coinage and, and other things. Um, but he blesses the church. He builds these cathedrals. Um, he gives status to the bishops. Um, he kind of, you know, does for the church what the pagan emperors had done for paganism before. So it, it's now accepted uh, to be a Christian. It's now uh, accepted to go to church, to be a member, to be a pastor, mm-hmm. a missionary, whatever. It, it, it's a complete turnaround from the paganism of before. And succeeding Christian emperors will build on that legacy. So suddenly you've gone from the church being an enemy to the church being somewhat central to what's happening in the Roman Empire, funded by the very coffers of the empire. And so, you know, to be a a member of the empire becomes so close now that you're a member of the church. And that has its own ramifications long-term, maybe that were never intended, right? It's that the law of unintended consequences that while Constantine himself may have thought or his advisors may have thought, you know, we're just going to uh, continue to sanction these things, but we're not going to necessarily force people to uh, Christianity or attempt to do those things later. These things are, are, are rendered. I, I was talking with my students um, the semester about how much about a reinterpretation of, of what we call Constantinianism actually happens after the fall of Rome under Gregory the Great, because it's just through the church that's the only social organization that's left in the, in the wasteland across, um, uh, across the uh, Southern Europe and, and in the Mediterranean world uh, with all of the, the chaos and other things that are going on, the only stable force is the church, and it, it takes an, on its a whole other uh, kind of life at that point. So with Constantine, um, should we basically fear him, or should we kind of say a person that God used in his time? More of the latter, um, in my opinion. 
you know, there is a danger from um, a, a close alignment of, of politics and Christianity. Um, uh, there, uh, some of which we've seen fairly recently yes. within American politics. And, and so there is an inherent danger in that. Um, you know, the gospel isn't something that the state um, it is ever going to be the means and the vehicle by which it can happen. It, it's through the church. Now, that doesn't stop Christians being active in politics, but politics shouldn't be active within the church. That's a great line. That's a great line. I think there's one Wilberforce would agree with. I I believe he would, <laughs> as the great independent that he was. That's fantastic. Well, with that, we'll draw our conversation today to a close, actually with a letter, a quote from Constantine himself, and a letter that he wrote to Sapor, king of the Persians. I, I find this so fascinating, again, even talking about the nature of whether he's a Christian. Listen to these words. He says this, in defending his Christianity, he's, he's writing uh, to this, this king. He says, I profess the most holy religion, and this worship I declare to be that which teaches me deeper acquaintance with the most holy God, aided by whose divine power, beginning from the very borders of the ocean, I have aroused each nation of the world in succession to a well-grounded hope of security, so that those which, groanings in servitude to the most cruel tyrants and yielding to the pressure of their daily sufferings, had well nigh been utterly destroyed, have been restored through my agency to a far happier state. This God, I confess, that I hold in unceasing honor and remembrance. This God, I delight to contemplate with pure and guileless thoughts in the heights of his glory. This God, I invoke with bended knee. And there we go, listeners. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of This Week in Church History, and we will see you next week. 